Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. As always, you can see all of the creative work associated with this episode and all of the others on our website, onstrategyshowcase.com. You can also sign up for new episode alerts and you can connect to our guests. Today, we are talking Yorkshire tea. And although this is a conversation about tea, I think any brand could insert itself into uh, this storyline. It's a brilliant case study about achieving growth in the face of major competitors, particularly in a category that was not growing, where the brand had to steal share. And under sort of pinning the entire episode, I think are two key things. One is don't uh, make the mistake of confusing habit for loyalty. And you'll hear some great perspective on that topic as we go through this. And also don't make the mistake of kind of assuming that your giant competitors will react the way you think they'll react to what you do. And we get some great perspective too on how these two giant competitors that Yorkshire Tea was competing against, how they did not actually react in the way we might think and why. I really enjoyed Dom Dwight's uh, perspective on this. It's a terrific episode about brands that, in the face of what one might think are, are very difficult obstacles, overcame it and went from, I think, fifth or sixth in its own category to being number one. An amazing journey of achievement in stealing market share from major incumbents. So I hope you enjoy this. It is Dom Dwight, Marketing Director at Taylors of Harrogate in Wakefield, England. They own the Yorkshire Tea brand, and it's Laz Horner, Strategy Partner at Lucky Generals in London. Enjoy. From a U.S. perspective, we were more of a coffee-dominated country here. And um, one of the interesting things, when I reflect back on when I was younger and uh, I'd watch my, 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 my mom or, or, my, or, or other parents drink tea, they drank tea when they were at home or when they were at work. But when they went out to a restaurant, they had coffee at the end of the meal. There was this sense that coffee kind of played or deserved or played a different role in, in an experience laws. It's, 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 is that something that, that you see from your perspective living in the UK? At least among yeah, the I older think, drinker. Yeah, I think, um, I think coffee has, has made inroads in the UK. Uh, we're not immune to the kind of Starbucksification of the world, and we weren't immune to that wave. Um, so I think it's fair to say that there is more coffee drinking in in Britain than there used to be, you know, uh, a couple of decades ago. And I think you're right to say that it, it coffee's often drunk, perhaps more on the go. Um, uh, we take out, and it's and it's often drunk more, as you say, at the end of meals, you know, Italian meals or um, you know, continental meals, um, more habitually than tea. But I think we are a fairly unique culture in the sense that the the kind of uh, perhaps the bedrock of drinks in the day for a lot of people remains standard black tea you know the the first drink in the morning is often a cup of tea um the the, the tea break at work i mean it's literally in the language we talk about having a tea break but we talk we still talk about tea time um, yes, as, a way, right. as a way of talking about the you know the, the the kind of late afternoon meal um, so I think it's fair to say that coffee's made in roads, especially amongst younger drinkers, I think. But um, tea is still enormously widespread. I think we drink 100, about 100 million cups of tea a day uh, in the UK. Um, so that's that's 1.6 or 1.7 or something um, per, per person. So, and so when we, in our conversation here, it's my understanding is we're talking predominantly about 
uh, tea bags, and we're talking predominantly about black tea. This isn't sort of like a matcha tea thing or a green tea thing as much as it's a traditional black tea bag. Is that is that fair to, to say, Dom? Oh, absolutely. So all of that um, previous stuff around the role of tea in British culture, what we're fundamentally talking about, that, that standard black tea, the kind of English breakfast type blend in a tea bag, um, you do sometimes get people who will make that kind of classic tea um, as loose tea, but that's quite a small part of the market um, compared to standard black tea. And then we do have that other tea culture, the speciality tea culture, the fruits, the herbals, the greens, and even the matches. But those are quite small markets. Um, some of them are in quite rapid growth from quite a small place, but um, the kind of mainstay, the bit that kind of feels like it's been part of culture since well for centuries that's the tea bag who are the key competitors laws and um and and what are their sort of propositions or, or their platforms as brands yeah so there's there's two brands um who i guess you would sort of regard as the goliaths of or traditionally were the goliaths of british tea and those are pg tips um and tetley tea um Two very big brands, PG being kind of number one and technically number two, when we started working with, with Dom back in kind of 2017, 2018. And actually, they have been built as brands um, largely with very famous and very consistent advertising for literally 50 years. I mean, um, people don't kind of people talk about, you know, five years of a campaign is longevity these days, but um, PG tips started uh, running a campaign featuring chimps um chimpanzees from the <laughs> from the zoo uh, dressed up having tea parties etc back in 1957 i think it was and they ran that campaign for 30 40 years until people realized it was inappropriate and then they swapped to a kind of a, a character called monkey who is a um a, a sort of child's toy version of a, of a chimp you know um a cuddly toy, but still a chimpanzee. And the Tetley Tea Folk um, was Tetley's campaign. So they have these little kind of characters from from um, from the north dressed in little kind of white factory outfits who were meant to represent the experts who were making Tetley Tea, little animated characters that they used on everything. And those campaigns run for, as I say, decades. So um, both those brands had incredible equity um, and were therefore incredibly hard to shift from the number one and number two spot in the market. So, so Dom, when you look at them, um, how would you at the time contrast Yorkshire Tea as a brand to Tetley and PG Tips? Probably the most obvious thing to say would be we're the clear challengers, which you know brings with it all sorts of different behaviours, doesn't it? But um, you were number when, three, right? At the time, you were number three. I think we were more like fourth or fifth place. We had about 12, 13% market share. And our main concern at the time was there was um, Twinings, which is more of a, a oh, kind yeah. of posh speciality tea brand. They had an everyday tea product, which we were kind of level pegging with. Um, so back then, I think the idea that we would ever get as even as big as Tetley or PG felt like crazy talk. Um and then, you know, over time, we've gradually inched closer to them. And then in the time that I've been working with Lars, which is the last six years of working with Lucky Generals, and we kind of went from third to second to first, um, you know, which is a bit of a 
pinch me type thing to say out loud but, uh, <laughs> but it's true I keep checking the numbers and it's definitely happening um I, I think the key thing was that um both Tetley and PG are owned by big multinationals who have massive portfolios of brands so I think when they're looking at categories they're being pretty clinical and logical about how they go about it so the although standard black tea in the UK is a big market it is in steady decline um, so you could easily think, right, well, I've got a got a big brand there, but it's not really worth investing any more in it because there's not much growth potential. Um, so they started looking at all the other categories. So both Tetley and PG have spent quite a lot of time trying to find ways into green tea, fruit tea, all sorts of things, and trying to just hold their position. Um, whereas because we were little, even though the ceiling was lowering, you know, to us it was still a long way up. So we had quite a lot of room for us to grow. Um, so we were going into that market with a real growth mentality of there's lots of opportunity here. Um, and I think that kind of came, that brought with it a kind of sense of momentum and positivity. I love the way that um, described it as being a growth opportunity. But this wasn't a category that was growing. It was actually declining. And um, so you were really in a position where you had to steal share not grow a category so what kind of challenges did that put in front of you yeah that's a great question um basically we realized that in order to as you say steal share we had to break what for british people is pretty much the habit of a lifetime so what we realized is that people kind of buy the same tea their parents bought like you grew up on this stuff it was always there in your cupboard your mum or your dad brought it home and that was the one you drank and therefore for the rest of your life you pretty much automatically just pick up that same box off the supermarket shelf and put it in the trolley we did some numbers early on and looked at the loyalty data in the market and i think loyalty to black tea brands is about is three times the size of loyalty to almost any other fmcg category so you know, people are obviously people can be attracted by price, etc. But on the whole, they're very, very habitual. Why, why do you are. think it's that that's such a large factor, a three time factor? What makes tea different than jam? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think weirdly, and, and Don might be able to come on in on this. We've talked about it. I think precisely because tea is such a sort of um, habitual item and, and such a standard part of life for British people. They don't think about it much. It's very, on one hand, it's very important to us because it's sort of part of our habits and rituals throughout the day. And even as Dom said, the way we respond to crises in our life, in our lives. On the other hand, we drink so much of it so often um, and in so the same occasions and ways that we, we sort of don't engage much with the choices that are on the market. Um, we're very happy with the one we've got. Uh, we always have had that one. And we're always going to make it our way and drink it our way. So it's it's very hard to break that habit. That was the main challenge we faced, really. We talked about it as sleep shopping, like these people are sleep shopping the category. How the hell are we going to wake them up? That was our challenge. So when you when you look at that, Dom, it's sort of like Coke versus Pepsi. It's, it's that, um, and maybe it goes back to your point that you made about the fact that it's been a pretty sort of low-key category, not a lot of dynamics, that maybe that's what has influenced people's um, habitual behavior is the fact that it isn't really a dynamic category where there seems to be a strong motivation to switch. Yeah, I would uh, I say that that's definitely been a factor. I guess 
the the way that Loz described it, you know, there's you've kind of got the fact that it's incredibly entrenched behavior and it's a kind of purchase choice that's not massively conscious at all. Um, underneath it, though, there's like a surprisingly strong emotional connection to the brands that people buy. They're just not processing that particularly consciously. You describe it as maybe apathy over loyalty uh, laws. Can you tell me about what you meant in, in the context of tea brands? Yeah, I guess I guess what we were getting at there was 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 this fact that I think, as Dom said, that there had been a degree by the multinationals of almost slightly ignoring the consumer. In fact, I think you know they they they'd actually value engineered their products a little bit over time. You know, the amount of tea in the bag would go down a little bit. Um, or the quality, perhaps, of the ingredients sourced um, from overseas might be, they might be able to cut a bit of money there, and they knew they could do that because of this, as Dom said, sort of ingrained habitual behaviour that meant people just wouldn't, you know, it would have to be something pretty radical that would make people stop buying their brand of choice. Um, so it didn't really feel like fierce advocate loyalty. It felt more like as I say, sleep shopping the category. And but the Orchard Tea, with its kind of absolute focus on quality of product and the challenger positioning, you know, it felt like it it could try to champion tea again, I bet, uh, I guess, for British people and, and say, look, there is something better out there and you should come and try it. Before we dive into sort of defining the your target, I wanted to first touch on um, the reputation of Yorkshire Tea. What was the uh, brand's reputation at the time when you started working with it? And was it a regional or a national brand? One nice little fact that's always made me smile about Yorkshire Tea is that the brand was created in 1977, which um, coincidentally, so was I. <laughs> so I quite, <laughs> I quite like the idea that I'm the same age as the brand. Um, but when it was first, the reason why I'm saying this is when it was first created, that the ambition for Yorkshire Tea was quite small. It was to create a, a tea for Yorkshire people. Um, blended for Yorkshire water and then over time I think that this is well before my time obviously I was busy probably playing with Lego on the living room carpet or something but um, you know we realized that there um, was an appeal about Yorkshire tea that went well beyond the boundaries of Yorkshire the county Um, so it was gradually becoming a national brand by the time that I joined the business um, it was much more established as a national brand, but there was still quite a lot of work to do, you know, to just make sure that it was available everywhere for one. And then to gradually chip away at um, your consciousness of consumers in other parts of the country. Um, so definitely at the point when I joined, it was well on its way to becoming a national brand. Um, and I think what we were trying to do was trying to figure out like, how had that happened? Like, what was it about the kind of regional branding of this now national product that was helping to win over people who maybe had no connection with Yorkshire? Is that the sort of the problem that you went to Lucky Generals with? Uh, to help articulate yes that? Yes no. I think uh, Loz definitely will uh, be able to comment on this too. But I, I think we'd begun to figure it out, but we needed more help. So um, there's certain things. You know, I think um, there's a... Even if you're not from Yorkshire and you have no, you've, you've not really been to Yorkshire, I think for the average Brit, there's still an idea of what Yorkshire is in your mind. Yes. And it's a fairly traditional, rural, heartwarming kind of view of the UK. 
And I think there are also some, you know, stereotypes, obviously, usually a bad thing, but there are some nice stereotypes about Yorkshire, about the idea that people are pretty straightforward. They say what they mean, um, trustworthy, hardworking, you know, all those kind of things. Um, so I feel like all of those factors come together to mean that if you're like a London dweller, Yorkshire isn't some alien concept to you and it's got some positive associations. So I, we were beginning to work out like, well, how do we use the fact that we're from Yorkshire and act on it with pride as a way to be quite distinctive and cut through? But also once we've cut through for that message to have some meaning to it, that's actually quite useful when you're trying to convince people that your product is a decent product. And what about, um, what about product features? Were there distinctive features of the product that you felt were, you know, leverageable against PG tips and Tetley? Um, well, I, it's tricky this because I think that when you get into the detail of like what makes tea good, um, you lose people <laughs> really fast because um, people, you know, like if you had, if I had a captive audience and I tried really hard, I could maybe get people to be excited about why what goes into a <laughs> cup of tea. But the average person is busy thinking about seventeen other things, and they're late for something. So the idea that they're really going to stop and think about like the differences between tea, it's it just doesn't happen. And, and really, that is the point where we started. Um, we needed the help from Lars and the guys at Lucky Generals because we were just trying to find a way. How do you strengthen that um, message? Which is over time, we gradually found this word proper and realized that when we talk about property and a proper brew, that word has got real clout because if you talk too much about strength, so that is one of the project, product features is that Yorkshire tea is the stronger tea, but that's off putting to some people. Um, and if you talk too much about like, I don't know, brightness or try to describe flavor, uh, once you get into talking to consumers about flavor, you quickly realize that there isn't really a vocabulary for tea. People talk about it being nice or it being lovely. They don't talk about it being malty or brisk. Which yeah, there, is wasn't another... a, there wasn't an artisanal sort of aspect to tea at that time. No, and if you went down that route, you'd fall flat on your face because people would just not, recognize those terms they wouldn't mean anything to them so I, th I guess what i'm building to is you know we'd had a few years of gradually getting a better handle on how to use yorkshireness gradually getting a better handle on how to communicate properness and gradually getting a better more confident grasp of like what is this brand's personality and tone of voice but what we what we were struggling with was i think we were doing a really good job of um, enhancing the perceptions of the people that were already aware, aware of Yorkshire tea and making them much more likely to choose us in the supermarket. But at the point when we started working with Lucky Generals, the challenge that existed was that will only take us so far. Like, How do we start getting the attention of people who don't think about Yorkshire tea where we're just not on their radar? One of the things that I, that I read, I think it was in the 1990s when you were beginning that sort of journey um, there was this idea of a tea sampling van. Yeah, that was the that was the first thing I worked on actually, Fergus. So about twelve years ago, I was kind of just this like social media monkey in the back, uh, trying to figure out how to say things on Twitter that wouldn't get me in trouble. And <laughs> um, and then a few things came together. So uh, the marketing team at Taylor's started to notice that brands and social media was an interesting space, and that interesting things were being said about Yorkshire tea. So I kind of got hooked in to come and work more closely with them at that point. 
And then the van that you're talking about is a sampling vehicle, which we call Little Urn, because he had an actual Little Urn inside to make tea. And it's it's like a converted ice cream van that's bedecked in the Yorkshire Tea pack illustration. So it's pretty lurid. You wouldn't miss it. Um, And when he was first created, Little Urn was just used to sort of tour the UK and go to events to sample tea. but we we had an idea, which was actually if we were trying to do an ad campaign that would really get noticed, then maybe if we actually did something interesting and bold and then used that in an ad, that would cut through. So we sent our van over to the States uh, where, and forgive me, but you know, generally the British view of tea in the US is not good. Like if you're trying to get a decent cup of tea, as a Brit would expect to get it, um, then Brits are often disappointed when abroad and uh, particularly in those days in the US. Um, So we went to the US with this idea that we were driving around rescuing Brits abroad from terrible tea. Um, (laughs) And it it led to a TV campaign, but it also importantly led to a kind of ongoing social media conversation about that subject. Um, That was probably the first campaign we did that really felt like it had punched through. Um, But uh, going back to the kind of story I was um, telling a few moments ago, I suppose the key thing is, although that punched through and we then built on it with a few more campaigns over the years, we were still hitting this bit of a ceiling where our approach to advertising was landing really well with people that kind of already knew us and it made them think much better of us. Uh, but for those who didn't really think of Yorkshire Tea, it just still was not quite cutting through or at least not cutting through to the scale that we needed. So Lars, when we let's let's uh, given all of that, you know, it, the brand comes to Lucky Generals. Um, you guys take a look at it. How do you begin to look at the target? As as again, as we talked about earlier, this is really about stealing shares. So, are you looking at are you looking at a PG tips drinker or, or an Aptatly drinker? Are you studying them, or did you come at it from a different perspective? Yeah. We did very much with this objective of um, going beyond preaching to the choir and starting to reach out to some of those habitual sleep shopping uh, consumers. We did very much have the, the kind of the core PG and Tetley drinker in mind as our audience. So we knew we had to wake them up and get them to notice Yorkshire tea, perhaps for the first time. But actually, this is an example of a campaign that didn't really come from audience insight. Because I guess they were our objective, winning them over and, and getting them to notice us. But actually, it was it was looking really at the company and its culture is is where the idea came from. So tell me about that. I remember going up for the the very first kind of um, briefing. It was a pitch, so actually, it was multiple agencies as you often have in those situations. And we all got this great day's worth of um, induction uh, from Dom and team, and they talked about properness as a as a philosophy and how they have this phrase of like we do things proper which is a very yorkshire way of saying we do everything really well um and it was written on the wall actually there was i remember there's a still got a picture of it we do things proper written on the wall with all the um all the staff kind of photos underneath and it kind of became obvious to us that the secret of this brand and its challenger status and its quality and the sort of the underpinning of all of that was was the philosophy of the organization and how it operated but i think we were also quite nervous because the truth is 
we could have explained that in quite sort of complicated and boring ways. So as we did our kind of inductions into how they actually made the tea, we had all these examples of how they do things proper. So, you know, at Yorkshire Tea, they, they taste like a thousand cups of tea a day to make sure the quality is brilliant. And when they go and um, source the tea from the plantations, they literally stay with the farmers so that they understand and get to know their families and they know which side of the hill the best leaves are, are to be found. And there was all these really interesting kind of product examples of doing things proper. But at the same time, we knew that if we made advertising about that level of detail about tea, it would just leave everyone absolutely cold. Because as Dom said, no one in the UK wants to know every bit of scientific detail about how the tea is made. We just don't engage with the product at that level. That was the creative challenge. And when we set to work on the kind of the pitch work, you know, I sat down, I remember sitting down with Nick and Lee, who are our um, senior creative team on it at the time. And and we basically had conversations about how, how are we going to get the UK to um, to recognise that this is a company that does everything proper. We, we set an objective, actually, of making the Yorkshire Tea's properness culturally famous, which I think Don would agree. From the first time we said that, we all kind of went, yeah, that's the real job here. It, it's, it, it's making the broader community and country aware of the fact that this is a rather special organization with rather special values how how do you get them to care about that it's probably not by lecturing them about you know how many cups of tea we taste a day it is it's going to be something more populist something more famous when i hear that i i think that i mean there's a big leap between between the idea of making it about what you do but not making it about what you do meaning that the campaign was not about the things that you guys do proper, um, it was implicit. And that's what's really uh, fascinating about this strategy is I think many strategists would, would think, okay, my God, we're going to have to make something about the fact that you guys go to a plantation or, or you do these various things. Did you? How did you react to that idea of focusing on, on everything that's done proper without focusing on the actual things that are it might be practical points of a competitive distinction. There's a few, I've got a few thoughts on that. So one of them is that obviously now, six years on, it's hard not to rewrite history and just sit here and sort of pretend that like I was 100% bought into the whole of it from the beginning. Um, I think the truth is we probably had some nervousness within Yorkshire Tea Towers around, um, uh, but there's this product that's got real um important features yeah. and if we instead just start to talk in a in a more open way about like our overall approach to life and properness are we not skirting over the vital things we actually have to say um but i i guess that was at least for me anyway that was tempered by this kind of instinctive feel that um Loz and the team were onto something because i i do subscribe to that belief you know like you don't tell someone you're funny you make them laugh um and i think i liked that idea that through our advertising we'd be communicating that we don't just believe in doing things properly but we actually really do it um and finding a way to show that rather than to say that um just feels right i think something else that really won me over was um uh, so much advertising ends up feeling like it kind of makes sense on paper, but then the the creative itself just feels really like um, uninspired or 
uh, lacking in spirit. Um, and I, I, you know, I probably watched too much TV when I was a kid. So I've got a real fondness for the advertising of 20, 30 years ago when ads were really funny and were often more entertaining than the programs they interrupted. So <laughs> that's right. That's the other bit that Loz has maybe not touched on just yet is that, you know, that obviously that's the logic behind the approach, but the delivery of the approach was really funny, like warm and entertaining. Um, so I had confidence that, you know, uh, regardless of what the kind of thinking was behind the ad, the ads themselves were going to be well received. So, you know, one of the things that you um, mentioned and that I've read, Loz, is this idea of, the broken windows theory. I think they, I thought that was fascinating. Can you tell us what, what that is and why it's relevant to your strategy? Yeah, the broken windows theory was a, was a, a, a famous um, sort of psychological study um, where they where where some some academics basically posited that you could sort of fix. You, to address big societal issues, you could start with sort of small actions to show you were really doing something um, to make a difference. So, um, for instance, if you want to stop sort of crime on the subway, you start by, you know, wiping off the uh, graffiti to show that you're uh, making this a nicer environment or you, you know, you fix the broken window to show there's no vandalism here. So small actions can can make a bigger point about what the organization or the um environment is like and it, this goes back to the kind of truth really behind this campaign which is whenever we went back up to yorkshire tea to learn more about the tea making process or try a new batch of something during this pitch process it wasn't wasn't really that that we noticed it was the small things that were happening around the headquarters that were being done proper that seemed more emblematic of that culture of doing everything proper so i remember that on the front desk they always used to have my name on a little stand saying hi laws you know welcome laws on on the and i was like what other company has ever like known i was coming <laughs> That's and, great. Set up, and set up a little a little thing and and i remember dom you might not remember this but i think it was it might have been the the pitch uh, briefing day, but I think it was May the 4th, which is, of course, Star Wars Day. And Yorkshire Tea have a brass band. Of course, they have a brass band because they're from Yorkshire. Um, and I remember being played in by this brass band and they played the Star Wars theme because it was <laughs> May the 4th. And, and it was those examples of not necessarily the tea making, but everything else being done proper that seemed to us to speak of this culture of a place where everything is done proper and perhaps the broader nation could understand and relate to that because if we see something small being done proper then obviously the big stuff must be done even better so you have this idea it i can see how it clearly makes the business feel good about itself as a strategy and as a platform and yet i'm sure you brought it to life in certain ways but how did you sell the organization or how did the organization sell itself on the idea that this would be enough when it turned into communications to make people switch? Shall I talk a bit about the work on that early round of qual testing we did? And then mm. maybe talk about the, because that's the exterior sort of case, isn't it? And then you can talk about the the internal cell. Um, sure. Yeah. So just to explain kind of what the first round of work was, we took this idea of, 
where everything's done properly. This is a place where everything is done proper, even the really menial or perhaps everyday jobs that other places might not go to great lengths to do brilliantly. And to bring that to life, we decided we would try and hire some of the most kind of famously talented people from Yorkshire, because it's Yorkshire tea. So Yorkshire celebrities who were famous for being particularly good at something. And we would bring them to the Yorkshire Tea HQ, the real HQ, and we would get them to do that job. And that would be the basis for our TV campaign. So our first three were um, for doing the interviews, for interviewing new bit new sort of candidates. We had Sir Michael Parkinson, who is a very famous sort of talk show host in the UK, like a, a Jay Leno or a um, you know one of your late night show hosts. So he yeah. he was and he's been around for decades. Yeah, he's been around for a very long time and very famously known as being from Yorkshire, you know, a son of Yorkshire. So he interviews new candidates in one of the TV ads. Would you like to come through, please? Next up, a man who's come all the way from Wakefield on the 36 bus. He enjoys salsa dancing, Yorkshire cricket and Barnsley football club. Good lad. He's here today to convince us he's got what it takes to join our experts in the tea buying department. It's Ali Malik. Cup of tea? Ah, oh, sorry. Sorry, man. Tell me all about yourself. Yorkshire tea, where everything's done proper. We had um, my personal favourite, the whole music. We had the whole music performed live by a, a Yorkshire band called the Kaiser Chiefs, who are um, quite big and, and well known. And literally in this TV ad, someone calls the front desk and is put on hold, and the, the receptionist holds out the phone so that the band can play this live music while, while she puts them through. Good morning, Yorkshire Tea. Oh, we was meeting the farmers in Kenya. Let me just check if he's back. Just popping you on hold. Thanks for holding. Putting you through. Yorkshire Tea where everything's done proper. Good morning, Yorkshire Tea. That must have been inspired by the uh, the, the uh, Star Wars band, huh? What's the Star Wars band? The, the Star with, with the band that played the music? Uh, no, it wasn't. No, not directly. No, although you're right. There is a nice overlap there, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the third one was, the third one in the launch sort of batch was, um, was about the Brownlee Brothers. The Brownlee Brothers were two, um, or are two Yorkshire Olympic uh, medal winning triathletes so incredible at you know running around and getting from a to b basically so we made them the couriers and they delivered packages in extreme speed across the um <laughs> across the yorkshire tea estate have you got those packages lads you down two ticks come on then Oh, sorry. It's US gold, right? Yep. Thanks for that. Yorkshire tea, where everything's done proper. So those were our TV spots, and the idea was to go, look, even for these menial jobs, we've hired the best that Yorkshire has to offer because we do everything proper. And actually, one of the first things we did was some qual, because we kind of all, as Dom said, we all had a sense that this could cut through. This could make even your kind of habitual PG drinkers or your Tetley drinkers wake up and think, oh, that actually is kind of funny. That brand does seem like a brand for me. It is delivering a clear message about quality and 
doing it implicitly, but saying this has got to be a better product because these guys do everything proper. But we wanted to test that. So I remember doing focus groups in uh, in both Yorkshire because we needed to test it amongst the heartland and also down in London and especially the posh boroughs of London where perhaps people are more cynical about Yorkshire as a, uh, a county. Uh, and it went down very, very well. And I remember thinking we have got something powerful here precisely because people are not overthinking it. They are just enjoying the story of a brand and an organisation that does everything to the nth degree. And then they're taking out the implicit message that the product must be better as a result. And then so was that helpful for you, Dom, in sort of giving you what you needed to uh, sell it internally, so to speak? Um, actually, not at first. I'm not, I don't know how well Loz will remember this, but there was a there was a tricky period because uh, remember, this was all part of the pitch as well. So, uh, you know, Lucky Generals were not just trying to sell the idea, but convince us that they were the right agency. And um, you know, I think it's fair to say I was already well on board, but um, I had to convince my boss um, about both the agency and the idea. And I think there was a there was quite a lot of trepidation about the use of celebrity um, at first because I think there's you know there are other brands and other ads that feature celebrity as a way of getting attention, but the connection with the celebrity is really thin, and the use of celebrity it just feels very contrived. Um, and so I think I had to I had to work quite hard to explain how this was going to be done and that it was going to be done in a way where we, you know, we were we were respecting the celebrities uh kind of talents, but we were kind of playing with the idea of their fame in that they would be just another member of staff. There was nothing special about the fact that uh Sir Michael Parkinson was doing the interview. So any mem any cast who were playing staff members. They wouldn't react as if it was surprising to them to see some microphones. <laughs> yeah, it's just exactly. an another day. And I think as the script gradually developed, I was able to kind of quell those nerves that it was going to come across as a bit of a tacky thing to do and gradually get people on um, the sort of page that it's going to, you know, that it would land really well and be really funny. But did you, did you find, uh, I'm curious though, had you as an organization, a marketing organization and the management of your, of, of the company, had you gotten to the point where you had tried the rational, even the rational done in interesting ways and it hadn't been working and that helped build the case for doing something very distinctly, distinctively different or not? It's a good question. I, well, we, we had done previous ad campaigns where we'd been really preoccupied with there needs to kind of be a, a product uh, message here. There needs to be some sort of um, uh, proposition being made. Um, and then, you know, wrapped it up in a really interesting package. And then when the ads had landed and we went back over them, I think what we realized was the, that kind of rational message hadn't cut through, wasn't the reason why the ad had worked. It was the other stuff. It was the kind of personality. It was the sort of pure distinctiveness of the ad that had done it. So I think I was already fairly comfortable with the idea that um, it would be the wrong way to go, to go for too much of a rational product message. Um, I do, yeah, you know, it, it is true, though, that it remains a challenge internally to hold that line because I work with people who are rightfully really, really proud of the product, um, you know, I'm just thinking of uh, 
uh keith the guy who heads up our um sourcing function you know he's got tea buyers there who work really really hard to build relationships and source the best tea they can so when i sit with him and say no one cares (laughs) obviously what i mean is people do care they're just it's very very hard to get their attention through tv to get them to engage with that and that is not the most effective way to ensure that they are more likely to buy our products so in in the in the first um, series that launched the ones that that Laws described earlier, um, and uh, leaning in on one last point regarding making the business case, did you have to include some sort of a call to action that uh, incentivized switching? Was that part of your message? Maybe not in in on a in TV spots or pre-roll ads, but was there a call to action? What was it? And and was there an incentive to switch in those early days? Not in the work. Um, We were quite careful to include, and we remain careful to include a clear product moment, if you like, as in a cup of a a brew, uh, a clear cup of tea. I think Yorkshire tea is visibly, I think, a more appetizing looking tea than the other teas. It's got a nice golden color to it. So we try and make sure we include that. But we didn't include any kind of rational, you know, half price now or go and buy it today. And I think that's partly because in this country, I think it, it, because it's you're entirely buying it from supermarkets and that's, you know, your weekly shot. I don't feel that British people always need to be told where to get this stuff or, you know, how to obtain it. It, it is very much if it's in your mind and we've managed to make a dent in your consciousness, hopefully the next time you walk in to that store, you you might just pause before your hand picks up the regular box on the shelf. Was there any was there any alignment with kind of in-store promotions or anything at launch, Dom? I can't remember. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the advertising is effective enough that it still has a positive impact when it's working on its own. And kind of in-store promotions are really effective too. But we like uh, we've noticed a really, really clear multiplicative effect when we get everything to work together. So when we're running a, a TV campaign that's good and is effective and the stores also have like Yorkshire tea really well displayed at fixture, you know, good merchandising with maybe a decent deal that compares well to the promotions on other brands. Um, that's everything just kind of clicks together at that point. Um, so maybe it's not something that happens a lot, actually, when you talk about marketing. But I really I absolutely have to give credit to the other parts of the business at Taylor's for kind of mobilizing so well to make sure that each kind of piece was in place. Um, I think when we do that, you know, so we don't necessarily need a price message or a place message in the ad if there are other people making sure that price and place have been really well executed. Right. Um, it was was Taylor's a um, a bigger part? Was Yorkshire Tea was that? Is it a premium price brand over Tetley and PG Tips? Yeah, the um, and at times the price premium is um, quite hefty. Um, so Standard Black Tea, the humble tea bag in the UK, is really um, has been really atrociously commoditized over the last. Uh, 20 years and going all the way back to our previous um, conversation about PG and Tetley and the way they've nurtured the category, there has been a kind of really fierce fight over pricing and heavy promotions. And then that breeds a kind of like, well, let's um, you know rethink the product and see if we can trim some costs there. Um, so tea is just very, very cheap, um, too cheap. 
Um, so we're coming in a because of the quality of the ingredients we buy. There's only there's a limit to how cheap we can sell it for. So we're going in the other direction, which is just if we if we can just invest in the brand and make the brand worth more and justify the premium, then um, you know we might not be growing the category in terms of total value. But I kind of argue that we are growing the category and that we're we're breathing value back into it by making tea itself by making consumers feel like it's worth paying more for. So I love the point that you that you made a couple of minutes ago, Dom, and you said that um, that uh, results came fast after that first wave of the campaign. So before we talk about the second wave, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what uh, why do you think that was and what was it that happened? I think it was within a might have been within six months of the campaign, but it was definitely within 12 months of the campaign that we moved from number three to number two. So, you know, it's not all about that, um, but that certainly helps um, really instill confidence in the business that, wow, we just eclipsed Tetley, you know, Tetley are a big iconic brand. Um, So I think that really put, um, lit the fire under us. Yeah. So um, Lars, before we go into the second phase, why did people switch? I think people switched because they noticed a brand that they previously ignored, despite its regional success and its success amongst its advocates. They just hadn't tuned into the category at all, really, because they were doing the same thing they'd always done. And at the tra- I remember getting the first wave of tracking data, which came really quickly, you know, a month or two after the work. And I remember looking at not just the like likability scores and the the you know the awareness score going up and so on but i think we asked the um we asked the tracking um agency an agency called the nursery who are great to cut the data uh by people who already drank yorkshire tea and their response to the work versus people who didn't drink or hadn't previously drunk yorkshire tea and their response to the work and we could see that we were no longer just talking to the quite no longer just preaching to the choir you had these enormous lifts like month on month lifts in sudden kind of awareness of yorkshire tea and people agreeing with phrases like it makes a high quality tea and um it's worth paying a little bit more for so you could see that we'd just broken through the the ceiling perhaps on the brand the next phase has um has um a couple of spots in it that are that are called one's called induction and one's called warehouse. Um, Lars, tell us about what was the what was the uh, the ask as part of the brief for this work, and how do you see this work has been distinct from the first round? Yeah, so I think there's a kind of point to make here about consistency. We 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 were very very clear that the this formula was working, and I guess resisted any temptation to radically tinker with success so it was about finding our next we used to call, we call them our next few hires to work at the york city factory in menial jobs you know who are our talented celebrities going to be they have to be from yorkshire so there was actually quite a fun and an interesting process where we kind of matched every famous person from yorkshire to a potential role they could play at the yorkshire thq to prove that we do everything proper then you have to look at who's available and who can you afford. So there's an interesting kind of strategic, creative triangulation of factors. And then you have to decide, like, 
how do we best spend this money on on this next round of work? And I think the very deliberate thing we did, because the two spots we made, one featured a magician called Dynamo, who's from Leeds, um, who is perhaps not a kind of huge, huge A-listing talent in the UK, but did a really good job of um, of increasing the kind of diversity of talent within the campaign. Um, he's British Asian. Um and spoke to his kind of return. He was coming back from a, some time off. Um, he had a new tour going, so it was quite topical. And in that ad, uh, he he's famous for a kind of levitation trick he does. So in that spot, someone in the factory basically asks, can you get some tea from the top of that? Um, we need some tea from the top of that set of shelves. And he literally levitates up to get tea and comes back down. <laughs> I didn't um, get that at all when I watched it the first time. I love it. Now that you explain it, it makes total yeah, sense. Yeah, it helps if you know who he is. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, uh, but the big the big choice was we, w- we decided we would actually spend really the bulk of our kind of talent money on that round on Sean Bean, because we had this script called Induction, which was about who's going to give the rousing speech to the new joiners at Yorkshire Tea to say, you work at Yorkshire Tea now, and here we don't just make tea, we make proper brews to fire up the spirits of the nation. And, and of course, Sean is, A, he's A-lister, so we have this hypothesis that he would have greater reach across age groups. You know, Previously, some of our spots are slightly biased towards certain age groups. Like they, As a mix, they work really well, but we've never had one that like got everybody and we thought Sean might be able to do that because he's so big and everybody knows him. And secondly, he'd been in Game of Thrones and various other things where he literally is famously making these sorts of impassioned speeches to the masses. So he's he's sort of the ultimate character of both a, a Yorkshire talent and a celeb to play that role. Yeah. Morning, all. Morning. 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 Brothers, sisters. Today, a great legacy rests upon your shoulders. Because here, we make more than just tea. We make proper brews. Brews that bring a tear to your eye and warmth to your soul. So go out there and do it for each other. Do it for yourselves, but most of all, do it for Yorkshire! Oh, and the fire drill's Thursday at three. Yorkshire tea, where everything's done proper. And so I think that's probably the spot that we've seen really, it has proved the most successful for us in terms of reaching every member of the UK and, and kind of driving our, our, our message home. Then we, uh, we have the spot that originally drew me to this, this, this entire body of work, which, uh, which was social distancing done proper. I mean, it's this is this is not an, an ad that's going to play well on a podcast. We'll drop we'll drop it in, but you've got to go to the website to see it. But can you um, can you explain, Laws, uh, what this is actually all about? Yeah, I think this is a really this is an interesting bit of evidence that properness as a platform and this idea of a company that does everything proper has been uh, fertile beyond and above those famous TV spots we've been talking about. It's, it, I think it's really given us all an ability to flex our muscles in different channels and for tactical opportunities. So when um, when when lockdown hit and when, you know, at the height of COVID, we had a really good conversation with um, Dom and team uh, and, and various other people, I should say, actually, that, you know, there are many other planners other than me who worked on this, Matt, Miles, Rosie, Caroline, et cetera. So 
the planners on it at the time and, and myself, we, we we spoke to the team and there was this conversation about what role does Yorkshire Tea play in this moment of crisis? And so many other brands were making sort of obviously kind of thoughtful, but rather depressing ads, Zoom montages of this time of crisis. And we thought it's quite odd for a, a tea to do that because a tea is a pick-me-up. It's a nice little moment in the day. The role of Yorkshire Tea should be perhaps to give us a bit of levity in this, you know, these difficult moments. Um, and maybe we can use our propness platform to give people, you know, proper pick-me-ups, a proper little lift. And we did a number of things, actually, a number of smaller, tactical, more social things throughout the COVID period. But when it came to going back to work, there was this announcement in the UK that, right, we're all going back to work. Um, and, and the big thing was you had to be safe going back to work. So you can't be too close to other people um, and, and you mustn't mingle too freely because you, you, you could pass on the germs. Um, and so we came up with this idea of to do a sort, sort of a public service announcement, really. Um, and we called it um, <laughs> social distancing done proper. And, and the, ob- the observation was that people are going to be making tea for each other again at work, because one of the things you do when you're all together in the office is people say, would you like a cup of tea? I'll make, I'll do a round of tea. But when you do that, you need to be careful not to stand too close to the people that you're serving. So we created a teapot with a six foot long spout <laughs> so, that you, so that you can pour uh, the tea from a safe distance. And that was the subject of a nice little social film that we put out. Yeah, I love it. And so what you're basically seeing in this spot is you know, various situations or times during the workday where people want a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. And they, and so you might see the, the six foot long spout of the teapot just enter the room and pour the tea. And then the best, the best part for me, of course, is trying to get the teapot into the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah yeah it's still in the office somewhere we've still got it because we obviously had to make it for the shoot so it's still in the office somewhere but needless to say it's it's quite tricky to use you got to be thinking about uh some merchandising around that teapot tom definitely although uh yeah uh, you know the the problem of getting it in the dishwasher also extends the problem of putting them through the post (laughs) (laughs) that's true too guys this is terrific can you uh, hey one last thing to touch on is is um Maybe your perspective on on results, Dom. Uh, you know, over the over this period of time, you've gone from one position in terms of market share to your uh, to to first position now. Is that what you're telling us? Uh, tell us about tell us about that climb over these past few years. Did it did it uh, did it come at a predictable sort of growth level, or were there spikes around certain events that, when you look back on? you can see they were the most effective elements of the campaign and the time frame. Mm. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say, I guess spikes would imply that the, you know, we had moments where things dropped back. Um, so it's been like a, an incline. It's more the, it's been a much steeper incline, a much faster um, period of growth than we really expected. Um, but I don't think we really thought that by now that we would have overtaken PG Tips and become the number one. Um, but but that's massive. I mean, I, I mean, as I understand that, I mean, I think people are going to be curious. Like, what what was your share versus PG Tips share when this started out? Well, well when I first go on, you go lost. Well, no, I had a look at that. Actually. I think you should talk about when it was when you first died. What was it when in back when you first started? It was about thirteen percent, was it? 
Yeah, I think we were 13%. And then PG and Tetley had about 33% each. So, you know, two thirds of the market was just two brands. Yeah. And then I think when before we started working with you, I think you'd managed to climb to the, I think you were like 21% or something. And and then PG was still at the kind of 33% level. And I think I'm right in saying I just had a look at the newest data. I think we're now 34%. And yep. obviously PG and Tetley are now much lower, I think, in the in the 20s. Amazing, guys. Jeez, I mean, that's just incredible. My last question would be, um, I think it's probably on, on the minds of a lot of people, which is um, a, a lot of times clients are afraid, it, they appear to be afraid, or at least, at least they're risk-averse to taking um, strong points of view against major competitors because they're afraid that they'll get crushed by the competitor. In other words, the competitor is going to react to what you do. Did Tetley T or, or did PG Tips react to your aggressive growth and what you were achieving, or did they stay somewhat sort of apathetic? Mm, good question. I think they they were relatively apathetic at first because, like a lot of disruptions, Yorkshire T's growth probably it happened slowly and then all of a sudden. <laughs> um, so. I think for a while they were content to just kind of try and crush us by outspending us on TV and out promoting us on the shelf. But I, I think over time they kind of gradually realized that we were onto something, that it was it was the way we were saying what we were saying rather than just how much money we were spending on saying it. Um, so I started to notice it was more, you know, imitation been sincerest form of flattery. You started to see little elements of what we were trying to do that you could see being done either by Tetley or PG, but um, it went, it went such a, it was so at odds with the direction they had been going that it felt like it took them a good few years to gradually shift direction and find a different way of talking. Um, And then fundamentally, you know, they're owned by very different types of businesses. So they seem to go through these spells of a big amount of investment, uh, not a quick enough payback, and then they drop it. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, you're not, they're not going to get a big turnaround like that. If the, the, you have to have that leap of faith and then keep going, you know, the most marketing's cumulative, isn't it? It is Dom Dwight, marketing director for Taylors of Harrogate in Wakefield, England, and Lars Horner, strategy partner at Lucky Generals in London. Uh, thanks for your time, guys. It's a great story, and I think there's inspiration. Uh, all the way along for for uh, strategists and other marketers who were uh, dealing with um, uh, trying to grow share, and, and uh, I think lots of lessons to be learned. Thanks for thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Fergus. Thank you, Fergus. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.